Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Hello and welcome to this edition of Out of the Question podcast. I'm Pastor Charles Roberts, and I am joined today by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Andrea, hello. Hi there. Today, we want to delve into a subject that presents itself to most people uh, sooner or later, and that is serving on a jury. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners are like I have been in the past. Uh, That's not something you typically look forward to doing because it always seems to crop up at the wrong time. Um, but our esteemed co-host, Andrea, recently had an opportunity to do that. As she will tell you, she's done it many times in the past. So I wanted to start out by asking her if her most recent serving on a jury has changed her perspective on any aspect of what our obligation is as a Christian or as a citizen to serve on a jury. So. I agree that most people, when they get their jury summons, are not happy about it. I wasn't when I got my jury summons in June saying that I had to show up in August. And I don't really think it's because most of us are not interested in participating in seeing justice served, although I imagine there are some that do. It's more because of how inefficient and in many cases how pretend it is in terms of what the original intent of a jury system is. Now, I've discovered recently that the U.S. is probably one of the few countries left, if ever having had a jury system, that it actually places, and this is constitutionally, the responsibility of justice on the citizenry, and we just don't leave it to the professionals. But anybody who's ever participated in the process know that it's rife with wasted time. They tell you you have to be there. And if you don't show up, you're subject to a monetary fine or time in jail. Once you get there at the prescribed time, it could be an hour, an hour and a half before they call you. And so I think for a lot of people, since it ends up being a very unsatisfying experience, most people want to avoid it. And I'm no different because not that I don't have a desire for justice to be served. It's just that I realize that very little of that goes on in our current system. Dr. Rushduni, in his excellent book called Law and Liberty, made reference to the fact that the jury system is a part of the wider system of law called common law. And he goes into some very readable detail about what common law is and how it's the foundation of what were the original legal codes and judicial processes in the original colonies of these United States. But he makes a statement, and I'm going to ask you if if this has been your experience, whether the most recent jury duty experience or in the past. In chapter 19 of this book under justice and common law, he talks about the fact that we are, have seen and are seeing uh, a legal and judicial revolution in this country. At least that's been the claim. But he says, actually, what's really happening is that we are dealing with the consequences of a revolution that has long since taken place. And he goes on to cite some of the problems related to the current legal system and how that affects juries. If you don't mind telling us, how many different times have you served on juries in the past? And did you see anything in your most recent Uh, experience that was different than, say, something you did maybe 10 years ago? Well, my first experience serving on a jury was many years ago, like 40 years ago. I actually was called to be a juror because you can all be called to be part of the jury pool, but then they have a selection process. I have So that was the time I actually served on a jury. Subsequently, I have been called to jury service sometimes never called and they said, okay, fine, we don't need you, go home. And then in other situations became part of what's called the voir dire process where the judge and both attorneys are going to question you to see if they want you to serve on the jury. So is it different than the first time? 
Yes, but not because it's gotten better. It's because I've become more versed in biblical law and have the benefit after years and years of Bible study and understanding the need for a systematic theology to realize that maybe what I thought was an inconvenience originally, I now see it as shaking its fist or thumbing its nose at the law word of God. So just to tell you what it was like, so you get there, you go through the metal detectors and and make sure that you're not carrying anything that's, you know, going to hurt anybody or whatever. You go up to the jury assembly room after you've checked in and Charles, nobody talks to each other. It's mm. it, it's so silent and most people won't even look at each other. Nowadays we have, you know, phones that everybody can be occupied with, but it was eerily silent. Well, let me just inter- interject. No one was told not to talk, right? Right. Right. Okay. Nobody was told not to talk, but nobody was talking. <laughs> okay. Right. So then they finally call us. We are sworn in. And what we're sworn in for is that we're going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But we don't swear on a Bible. We don't swear to God. We just swear by ourselves. I guess that's sufficient. And since you and I know that people don't lie, I mean, like who has ever run into someone who lies? The fact that somebody is swearing that all the answers they give are true would just be according to their moral code. And so that was the first thing I noticed. We were swearing on ourselves. Hmm. Okay. So then next we are told the nature of the case and the nature of this case was a sexual assault and battery that took place in 2018. So we're not exactly talking swift justice here. Right. And then we're read off, you know, the actual code of what the violation was. And we were shared, it was shared with us that if we make it onto the jury and we have to deliberate, we might have some uncomfortable moments because we're going to be talking about very personal things, body parts and whatnot with people we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so that was just basically, you know, telling us all that. But then the judge told us how much she appreciated us. We were a mainstay of the judicial system. Thank you so much for your service. But then she said something that I thought was interesting. If any words are said here, I want you not to look them up in a dictionary when you go home. Hmm. I don't want you to go on the internet to look up what does a term mean. So whatever you came in with, that's all we want you to have. And then throughout the jury assembly room, you're basically told not to do any research on the case. Again, is any of this enforceable? No, but you're warned not to do it. So then the process of pulling up 18 people out of the jury pool and one by one, they have to go through this survey, which if they had given us all at the beginning, then it would have been much slow, much quicker process because everybody would know what it was. But through every single one of the 18 people, where do you live? How long have you lived there? What does your spouse do? Do you have any lawyers or policemen in your family? Do you have bias towards lawyers or policemen? On and on and on. And so that takes a long time. And then dispersed in all this are, okay, now we're going to take a 15 minute break because we have to deal with important judicial matters. Somehow, I don't believe that they were dealing with all these important judicial matters, which usually took 40 minutes, 45 minutes instead of the 15 minute break as we traipsed from one building back to the jury assembly room. So as somebody joked, we got our steps in, right? Um, <laughs> yes. And then we'd get back after the break and we'd do something or say something. And then she would send us to lunch for an hour and a half. So clearly, if this was something where somebody like a private enterprise where people just weren't going to tolerate if you bring your car in for service or something like that, they really had no problem wasting our time. Hmm. So in the course of day one, when I heard the questions that all these other people were being asked, I started to get a really bad feeling on what was going on. One juror said, by the way, we've heard the charges. What's the penalty if this person is found guilty? The judge says, that's not for you to know. 
That's none of your business. All you're here is to judge the facts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this person, you know, wanted to know, we, you know, is he going to be thrown off the building? Is he going to give him a fine? What's he going to be given? But apparently that's not part of it, which of course is not biblical. Right. All right. All of God's laws have sanctions that are stated in terms of what happens if you don't. But the next thing that really got me, and I knew that as soon as I was going to be questioned, if I was called would be a problem. They wanted all the jurors to accept the fact that there was only going to be a single witness. Hmm. Well, that set off red flares on the testimony of two witnesses, two or three witnesses will a matter be decided. But they were saying, nope, you have to accept just one witness. Then they went on to spend time talking about the kind of testimony and they gave all sorts of legal analogies, which I'm sure are prevalent in law schools that How would judge evidence, if you're sitting in a room and somebody comes in sopping wet and says, wow, it's really raining outside. They wanted us to accept that that was the, that was as valid testimony that it was raining Mm. to a person comes in wet, doesn't say anything, but you say, oh, it's raining. Now, as one juror pointed out or potential juror, well, he could have just walked through the sprinklers or somebody could have thrown a hose on him. Right. Well, you could tell the judge and the lawyers didn't like it at all, (laughs) you know. So I knew this man was not long for the jury pool and he'd be excused and he eventually was. So at the end of the first day, I said, I raised my hand and I said, if I already know based on some of your questions that there's going to be an issue with my point of view or whatever, can I talk to the judge now so I don't have to come back tomorrow? No, you come back tomorrow. (laughs) So I came back tomorrow, which was the second day. And by the way, you don't get paid for the first day because that's your civic duty, but they do pay you for the second day. So I should get a check of $15 in the mail for the time I spent because apparently that's what it's worth. Anyway, so they excused about seven of the original 18. So now they had to go ahead, get some more people. So they were going to call seven more. One, two, three, four, five. Six. Okay. I pa- then I'm number seven that now I'm going to be part of this voir dire process. Now, gratefully, they didn't laboriously go through everything. What they said was, if there's anything that was been discussed that you think we should know about, raise your hand. Now, just keep in mind, Charles, if you're a lawyer or have a lawyer in your family, you're almost always going to be excused from jury duty. Mm. If you're a okay. policeman, and you have a policeman in your family, you're more than likely to be excused from jury duty because you see, they don't want you to be biased, whatever that means. So now it's my turn. And the judge asks if there's anything that I'm going to have an issue with. And I said, yes, the single witness rule. I said, it is a constitutional provision. It's true in the common law and it's true in biblical law that the testimony of two witnesses at least have to corroborate. So one witness isn't enough. Um, (laughs) And what happened next? (laughs) Well, the nice lady suddenly gave me dagger looks (laughs) and that went for a while. So now the assistant district attorney is now questioning me. The public defender who was defending the um, accused She would like me, (laughs) I'm thinking, because I'm saying one witness isn't sufficient. So I go into that again. And then the ADA, assistant district attorney, looks at me and says, are you a lawyer? And I said, no. He said, have you ever been to law school? I said, (laughs) no. He said, did you ever want to go to law school? (laughs) Which I thought was a rather silly question. And I answered, I said, the closest I ever came to law school was my father used to tell me when I was 10 that I argued so much with him that I should be a lawyer and everybody <laughs> laughed. Oh, but then he wanted to know, why is it that I knew all this stuff? And I said, <laughs> well, I'm a student of the Constitution. I'm a student of the Bible. And then he looked at me and he said, okay, let's say, let's say you were president of the United States and you could abolish this single witness law because apparently... In many states, we have it codified in the legal code that a single witness is sufficient. Okay, so that's an example of, gee, I didn't know it was codified, but it doesn't make it right, of course. And he says, so if you were president and you could just wipe out this law, would you do it? And I said to him, well, 
The Constitution does not provide that the executive branch makes laws. Exactly. That's the legislative branch. Now, at this point, he was, <laughs> um, you know, like flustered, kind of like, OK, so now the judge comes back in and she's heard me reiterate this over and over again. And she said, so are you telling me that when I give you jury instructions, you will not abide by them if you're on the jury? And I knew that was a trap question. Mm. Because if I said I will not abide by them, then I'm saying I'm an unlawful person, right? Mm-hmm. I said, Your Honor, and I was very respectful. I said, Your Honor, let me answer your question with a question. Do I have to give up my conscience and my convictions to be on this jury? Mm, excellent. I got my second dagger look and <laughs> kind of went around it some other way. And then she asked another get a, and she says, I'm asking you again. And I said, well, I'm going to repeat my same answer with a question. In order to serve on this jury, do I have to give up my convictions and my conscience? She kind of dismissed it. I was finally dismissed. I knew I would be dismissed. And they thanked right. me for you know being there. But those were only the things they brought up, Charles. There were other things in the line of questioning that I knew the way they were approaching this case. And, and I'll be honest, I don't know if the guy did it or not. I don't even exactly know. All I know is they have one witness and apparently don't have forensic evidence because they were telling us that if we saw somebody wet, we might assume that the person had been in the rain. So, I mean, you can tell because they're practically seeding it with these are the conclusions we want you to come up with. And by the way, no one else had a problem with the single witness rule. Well, just to clarify, was this county, state, or federal court? This was the superior court of my county. Okay. I I was released, but there were other issues that came up that I could see how they were planting ideas Mm -hmm. that were unbiblical. Well, I was immediately reminded of something I read many years ago that the uh, infamous foul-mouthed comedian Lenny Bruce once said, who found himself charged with obscenity crimes, and properly so, but he once quipped that in the halls of justice, the only justice is in the halls. And uh, apart from a play on words, when I hear stuff like what you're telling me and, and knowing you know what we generally know about the way things are going judicially and have been for a long time, there's a certain amount of truth to that in this, in this sense, that the way common law was established and operated in these United States for many, many, many decades, it was based on the idea and the principle of the so-called jury of your peers, your fellow citizens, would come together to adjudicate cases of criminal law, but they didn't require a law degree. It didn't require that, you know, have you been to law school and all the rest of it, because the assumption was that the average person had a firm understanding, or at least a passable understanding, of biblical law and just the general principles of justice as they had operated in English-speaking societies for many, many centuries. Uh, so that's the the halls part of it, you know, right. the, the, around the the common people. And what Dr. Rastuni was describing in Law and Liberty in that chapter, when what you experienced is a prime example of how things had moved from the, quote, common people having a biblical understanding of what justice and law is, and a general understanding about restitution, uh, about what's required for properly convicting someone of a crime, to, oh, well, we just leave it up to the experts, and if they want to decide that a person can be thrown in jail for the rest of their lives or hung by the neck till dead on the testimony of one witness, then they'll do it. And that's apparently what they've done. Yes. Now, the defense attorney made clear to the jury that the way they're supposed to convict is if the person is deemed guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that according to the Constitution, the defendant doesn't have to testify on his own behalf. He's granted that right through the Fifth Amendment nor does she have to present a case so that the whole thing rests on the fact whether or not the prosecution has proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, I had this feeling just hanging out there that without planting these seeds of how you were supposed to come to the conclusion, I didn't think that there would be the possibility based on you need the testimony of two corroborating witnesses. But then they brought up, you know, as they're talking to jurors about the Me Too movement and, you know, and and some jurors would say, well, I always believe women because why would a woman lie about something like this? Hmm. Now, of course, that person then was excused from the jury. But I thought 
how what an indictment on themselves. In other words, because someone in your family had been raped or because you saw a movie or whatever it is, you're saying you can't be objective in ascertaining whether or not the law was violated. And so many people were excused because they would start crying about how my sister when she was 12 and blah, blah, blah. And a doctor from Stanford was part of the jury pool and he had a mask on, which made me laugh. Um, because he should know better, but because he had worked in the ER and he has to deal with people who have been raped, he said he just always believes his patients. Well, as a doctor, you would believe your patient. If the patient said, I fell down and broke my arm, you would treat the broken arm or whatever the accus, whatever the statement is of what happened without having to make a judicial verdict and conclusion. If the person comes to you as a doctor, you help the person. But he was excused because of that. A geneticist was excused. I thought for sure because she looked like your basic, you know, liberal type woman with all her degrees and stuff like that. But I'm guessing that maybe they didn't have any kind of forensic evidence and she would say, oh, well, maybe that wouldn't work. So you saw people being removed from consideration in my case because I objected to how they were proceeding. One thing the judge did say is, even though it's the law and it's a law on the books, you wouldn't obey me. And I just said, Your Honor, everything that's legal isn't lawful. Mm. And again, she like she was not very happy lady. The point is, as I was thinking, Charles, I have taught biblical law for over 25 years. Okay. I go over it regularly. So even I was a little tense going up there. It was like, do I really want to go through all this? I know. Mm-hmm. But I really trusted in the fact that I was there for a reason and that the Holy Spirit would give me utterance. Now, as I thought about that, the Holy Spirit will give you utterance on things that you know. Mm-hmm. You won't start talking about stuff you've never read or heard about and suddenly it comes out right. But because I knew it and I could substantiate it and I wasn't, you know, crying or everything else, I was just matter of fact. And I would refer to when I was talking about the lawyers to the judge, I'd say, and counsel has said, counsel has said this. That's why I think the ADA thought I was a lawyer and mm-hmm. had some sort of slipped through and not admitted that I was a lawyer. But I knew I had to trust the Holy Spirit and I wasn't going to be ashamed of where my premises came from and that I had to be ready to give my answer. Let me tell you, as as sure as 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 relaxed and composed I may sound sound to now when people are listening, you know, the heart was racing and it's like, I, I'm in enemy territory here. <laughs> mm-hmm. What am I gonna do? Some people criticized and said, Well, you shouldn't have told them that so you could get on the jury. And I but no, I did swear that I would give truthful answers. So one person said, You probably did more good just because the whole group, the whole, the jury pool, the people who are already in the jury box, the attorneys, the, the sheriff, the court clerk. I, I, I had an audience of about 75 people and I just felt like I've got to talk now because obviously that's why I'm here. But the verse that kept coming to mind is from Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge yes. because they have rejected knowledge. I will also reject them that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of God, I will also forget thy children. And isn't that the issue when people are talking about, oh, the injustices of what happened to President Trump or the January 6th people? Yes, these are all infractions. The conclusion I think we're supposed to get, Charles, is if these people, if this can happen to them, what do you think is going to happen to you? And so despite all the nice things about how we're the, you know, we're the backbone of the justice system, only in as much as you do exactly what the judge says. I think that it was a, it's a reasonable assumption that back in, I'll say, the colonial and pre-colonial times in this country, in these states, it was a safe bet that when people were chosen to serve on a jury, that all the players involved, the jury, the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, the judge, everyone, the court recorder, pretty much was operating from the same framework about uh, understanding what justice is. And it was grounded 
on biblical law and common law, and common law and biblical law are essentially the same. And so I'm curious to know if what you saw led you to conclude that what was happening in this whole jury selection process was not a paring down to a manageable number of people who all agreed on a standard of justice, but rather, I'm not even going to say a standard of biblical justice, but rather a massaging and a manipulating of the scenario so that a certain outcome could be achieved by one party or the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I took note of the fact that this man had a public defender. So the public defender, the assistant district attorney, the judge, the sheriff, and the court clerk. And by the way, they don't have court stenographers anymore. They do it all by recording, oh. which I thought was interesting since we all know how recordings could be altered. Mm-hmm. But everybody was paid by the state. They were yeah. all part of the machine. And there was this definite idea that we don't really want people who are anything other than malleable. So to tell someone not to look up a word in the dictionary, don't talk to anybody about this case at all. They went so far as um, I, one of my children did a semester of law school. She didn't continue, but she did a semester. And they wanted to know how much she ever talked to me about the law. You see, that was going to make it so that certain people couldn't serve on the jury. Mm-hmm. So they really have like, yes, okay, so, you know, two teams are playing baseball. One team, you know, might be better than the other. So they can only use one arm. We get to use two arms, but you guys only get to use one arm. Right. So you get to see how that we must resist tyranny. And I, and most of the people on the jury, I would guess, thought that the real purposes of the justice system is to make sure we get rapists off the street. Because it sounds like from the way they were bringing it up that these two people were doing something that most people wouldn't consider right. And then one changed her mind. And so now, since alcohol was involved, they wanted anybody off the jury who thought alcohol was bad. Mm. Because they didn't, they, oh, and another thing, they had a, a big thing on. So we know we never blame the victim. So if a person, for example, there's a no trespassing sign, and the person trespasses and then is robbed, are we going to blame the person who trespassed for having been robbed? Okay. So I was like, what is this about? So that's what made me assume, since I didn't stay around long enough to hear any testimony, that more than likely people's sympathies won't be with the woman in this case, because what was she doing there in the first place, right? The other thing is, and they didn't bring it up, but it was foremost in my mind, Aside from the testimony of two witnesses, which is biblical, but then there's the case of a woman who was taken advantage of in the country. And as opposed to if she's taken advantage of in the city, she's supposed to cry out. She's supposed to assert that a crime has taken place. So we were supposed to say it doesn't matter what this woman was doing. All we're going to judge is whether he did what she said he did to her. Well, because the society has become so amoral and immoral, people don't think fornication is serious. People don't think adultery is all that serious. We don't think as a generalized rule that if somebody thinks he's a tuna fish, that we have to treat him as a tuna fish. Right. (laughs) Right. So this is the level of understanding. So I came away with the idea that Christians should not avoid jury duty, but they have to go in understanding that God's law applies to the believer and the unbeliever, the believing nation and the unbelieving nation, and that everything else is a counterfeit. And so if you don't know biblical law, how can you stand up for it? Well, and two, as Dr. Rushduni noted in that chapter, we are dealing with the consequences of many, many decades and centuries of abandonment of biblical law in the common areas of county life, of city life, of family life. And when that happens, the the basis of law, the practice of it is uh, that vacancy, if it was founded on God's law, will be filled by something else. And of course, we both know what that something else is. It's humanistic law, man's law. And that always inevitably trends toward tyranny and the domination of judicial authorities, state authorities over their, quote, subjects. 
And you can see that it sounds like in stark relief in what you were dealing with. And we see it all over the place nowadays. You know, the, the, the beauty of God's law, apart from the fact that it's divine and divinely revealed and infallible and inerrant, is that it is the absolute perfect standard of justice. This is what God says is justice. And if people would but follow it, we would have indeed a just society. And criminals would be, uh, if the penalty demanded it, executed. Thieves would make restitution to those from whom they've stolen. And people in a collective way would understand this is how we deal with criminal population control. As it is, the state has its own version of that, and it, it tends toward the, uh, the the domination of people, be, there, be they the, the guilty or the innocent. So what I think a lot of people either fail to remember or maybe never knew, that the Bill of Rights was especially added to protect the people from an overreach of government. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the jury wasn't supposed to slap Mr. Jones on the, the knuckles because he did this or that. The purpose of the jury was to protect Mr. Jones from a tyrannical government that was going to hoodwink him into certain things. Most people, Charles, have no concept that under biblical law, a confession is not sufficient to convict. Mm-hmm. If you watch any of the legal shows or watch any legal movie, ah, we've got a confession. That should be enough. In scripture, it's not. And I know you know, but I wonder if our listeners know why the confession isn't sufficient. Well, you know, because people are fallible and they're sinful and they make a, they may make a false confession, but God's standard is that they, their conviction must be based on the testimony of two witnesses. Right. And confessions can be coerced. Right. And in a lot of cases, this didn't come up in this trial, but I know with other people I know who have been accused of things. And again, until you hear all the facts and everything else, you don't know if the person did what he or she is accused of. But oftentimes in our civil system or even our criminal system, piles of things. So you might be charged with 42 different things. And then in order to show you how willing they are to be accommodating, they'll just bring it down to two, plead guilty to those two. We can avoid that messy trial. And, you know, you just do the minimum time or whatever it is. See, plea bargaining isn't part of a biblical law system. You don't let the guy who's the smaller fish give you information and he goes away so you can catch the bigger fish. That's not justice, yet it's rampant in our system because that's how a lot of people who might not be able to afford a trial or an attorney basically try to make the best of this terrible situation. Dr. Rush Dooney, in his uh, chapter on justice and the common law, said this, the Constitution thus established both the common law and trial by jury. Trial by jury has very significant purpose. Among other things, it was intended to preserve the administration of the law to amateurs. Get that now, to amateurs. The meaning of this was that justice as administered by the jury was based not on a technical knowledge of statute law, but on a Christian sense of justice. And once that goes out the door, as it has had happened here in most all of our states, there may be a few little places here, there, and yonder in the in the hinterlands where there is a preservation of Christian standard of justice, we end up with exactly what you encountered and what everyone else does when they're called up for jury duty or experience a a trial. You know, I, um, I am familiar if I can interject a a, a personal familiarity when uh, I was a pastor in another state, the um, severely handicapped son of one of the members of my church was charged with sexual molestation of a child. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but I counseled this person and his family. I was with him when he was sentenced by this judge to 14 years in prison. I visited him in jail, and I'm familiar with other circumstances where a person was arrested and tried and convicted of far more serious example of the same sort of thing, and they were out within a year. Now, I have no words to describe the what I would perceive to be the injustice of a system 
where that sort of thing can happen. And according to God's law, there are, you know, standards by which these things can be fairly administered and uh, adjudicated. But I'm also, re- I'm reminded of something I remember, I think I, I remember Dr. Rustuni saying this in one of the, uh, the old from the easy chair tapes. Mm-hmm. He was having a discussion with someone around the table and I believe it was, he said something, they were talking about cars and automobiles. You know, they talked about everything, <laughs> those tapes. And he made the comment that, in the early days of automobiles, and you know, he was there when many of the early automobiles were rolled off the factory, and I'm sure his father had one, that just about anybody could fix a car. They weren't that complicated. They were very simple to fix. And in a similar way, I think that law and justice are in their godly form a similar, uh, similar thing. They're simple. They're straightforward that you don't require a quote expert as we think of it today to get the thing done. If you're simply skilled and schooled in the things of Scripture, then as you demonstrated in your situation, you know what's required for justice to be administered, and it must be, at a minimum, a testimony of two or more witnesses. That have to corroborate each other. If I said he was in a blue shirt and he was in Detroit and somebody else says he was in a red shirt and he was in Colorado, yes, you have two witnesses, but they don't agree with each other, so their their testimony then can't be given weight because you don't have corroborating witnesses. Yeah, and and uh, as has been pointed out in in other avenues and other situations, you know, one area where we who follow God's law are often cited as being cruel and inhumane is the fact that we stand by what God's law requires for those who are guilty of certain sexual crimes, such as sodomy. And so the image that many people portray is that, you know, if you Christians, quote, take over, you know, you're going to be hanging homosexuals from the lampposts and executing people because they commit adultery and that sort of thing. But God's law says you don't even get close to that point without the corroborating testimony of two witnesses, as you just pointed out. And, you know, there's a certain safeguard in that. And that means that unless somebody may be, quote, technically guilty of a particular crime, but unless there are those two or more witnesses who agree, then none of these sort of penalties would be administered. You know, it's interesting that people get up in arms. So you want someone who assaulted a woman to not go to jail or face the penalty? They fail to understand that justice is only justice when it conforms to the rules of justice the common law, biblical law. So does that mean that anybody who is accused of something, but there aren't two witnesses can get away with it? Well, yeah, maybe, but that presupposes that they're getting away with it eternally and that there aren't consequences given by God for what they did. That there, there are a number of things in scripture that we're told to do, but God does not give the state, the church, or even the family jurisdiction. A great example is the whole idea of a hate crime. You you don't like people who are orange, and therefore what you did or not did is like, we already know you hated people who are orange, therefore you're guilty. God doesn't give man the ability to control other people's thinking. You can inform people's thinking, but you can't control it. Just like the old, don't think of an elephant. Well, as soon as you understand what I just said, you probably got a picture of an elephant if you know what an elephant is. So if we don't do justice God's way, then it's not justice. No, and as I said, it eventually tends toward injustice and tyranny and uh, the destruction of freedom in society. Uh, That's part of the tragedy of the way that The satanic counterfeit has convinced people that any strident obedience to God's law word in personal family and civil and religious life is is some sort of tyrannical, you know, dictatorial sort of thing when the opposite is just the case. And if people would simply take the time to read the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and then read 1 Samuel chapter 8, where up to that point, the people had been living in a very decentralized society. There were prophets and people who knew God's law word. And so in cases of problems that were taking place in these communities among the Israelites, justice would be administered along the lines that we've been talking about. 
But they come to a certain point where they want to be just like the people, the pagan people around them who have tyranny and kings who rule over everything. And if you read Samuel's words to them on the authority of God, this is what's going to happen to you if you abandon the standard of God's justice. And it reads like a laundry list of the things that we've been dealing with in this society in our time. The other thing that happens, Charles, is that people have bought into the idea that the civil government is the only government. So let's take a case where let's say a man does violate a woman, but there aren't corroborating witnesses. But everybody sort of assumes that based on this guy's previous lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera, there are other areas and arenas of justice. The church, for example, could determine that even though the civil penalty wasn't appropriate because of the circumstances, God doesn't say we can't use our common sense. Right. If a child and anybody who's had children knows that they do things sometimes that are wrong, but you're not going to bring them to the civil court because, you know, they took $20 out of your purse or something like that. But the the purpose of the family and the justice of the family, the purpose of the church is that you then inform people. So Mr. X gets away with it. Well, now we'll talk to Miss Y and say to her, why were you there? You shouldn't have been there. That's not the sort of place you would go to if you weren't looking for trouble. But then you have women who say, oh, no, no, it shouldn't matter what I'm doing. It shouldn't matter at all. Well, it does matter what you're doing. If you're walking around with $100 bills attached to your back and you walk through the mall and somebody goes and snags one, yes, they did steal from you. But aren't you rather stupid walking around with $100 bills hanging off the back of your, you know, your clothes? So it's not only a civil matter that the purpose of the family, the purpose of the church is to instruct people on the law and then don't go. If we pray, Lord, don't lead us into temptation, we're not supposed to gallop toward it and just figure like, oh, that's okay. I would uh, encourage our listeners to engage the following little experiment. Get out your dictionary, or I, I guess I should say Google the term law and the term government and see the current definitions. But then if you have access to it, and it shouldn't be too hard to find these things, uh, you can look, I think it's the 18-something or other edition of Webster's English 1828. Dictionary. 1828. 1828. Yeah. And even older, you, you can find that the first or second level definitions of the word law, the word government, are very, very different than what they are today. And it reflects this shift as you've been describing, to where most people, when they say, well, you know, the government's doing this, that automatically is a default to meaning state or federal government. But Mm -hmm. that has not at all been the case throughout most of human history, at least in Christian circles, in Christian history, I should say. And God won't hold us guiltless. We're taking his name in vain if we say, oh, okay, but not everybody's a Christian. So you wouldn't expect Christian law to be in a secular court. There's no such thing truly as a secular court because that court will buy into the narrative of a worldview that either accepts the law of God and the authority of God or rejects it. So I was very much involved in a religious exercise when I was at the court last week but I made it clear that I couldn't abide by their religious views. Yeah, and according to God's word, even if you and everyone else there had been absolute atheists, all of you would have still been involved in religious exercise. Right. Uh, because law is inescapably religious. The question is, what's the religion that's the foundation of it? Well, let me ask you this. Based on your experience and your understanding of what justice is from the standpoint of God's law, word, and common law, What is your advice to our listeners if they get that inevitable jury summons in the mail? Well, whether or not they ever get a jury summons in the mail, it's incumbent on all people to know the terms of God's covenant. And the terms of God's covenant with his people are outlined in his law. And when people want to poo-poo the law and say it doesn't matter anymore, let me remind them that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and died a brutal death because of the violations of God's law. So what do you do? 
you teach the law, you study the law, and then you can use current situations and then have not so much mock trials, but look at and say, okay, what's the biblical response to this? And if more and more people who are applying God's law in their own life then show up as a result of a jury summons, they have a responsibility before God and before other people in terms of what's true and what's right. So had I left there that day just trying to find some other excuse and say, oh, yes, my daughter, she used to discuss the law with me all the time, they probably would have excused me. But then I wouldn't have been faithful to the call. The call is to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. So the reason that I said this is because I know God's justice is perfect. Men are imperfect, but God's justice is perfect. And that I have to not be ashamed of it. I think that we need to remember that if we find ourselves called up for jury duty, whether the process goes on forward and you wind up serving on the jury, but as in increasingly the case, unfortunately, you are likely going to be dismissed if you maintain a biblical standard, even in the most irenic spirit, just because of the nature of the legal system today. However, that doesn't mean you don't go and do what you're called to do, because it's just like saying, well, you know, I would witness to these people over here and share my testimony about faith in Christ, but eh, they're probably not going to believe it anyway, or they're they're already ranked sinners. They wouldn't be interested. Well, apart from the fact that you don't really know their circumstance, I think we fail to remember that the Lord's purpose in this world is twofold. He is siphoning off those who are becoming members of his kingdom and parting them from those who are damned and who are not. And so the idea is that no one will be able to say, well, no one ever told me. So the fact that you are sharing your testimony with someone or you're showing up at the jury duty and you're maintaining that biblical standard that serves, you know, as, as a, as, as a conviction, these people can not say, well, we never knew anything about this. They maybe at some point somebody in that jury room will have remembered. Well, there was that one woman who kept saying this, and now I think I understand why. Or conversely, maybe we should have listened to what she said. And again, I am not sovereign. I didn't predestinate this situation as God has. So you go as far as you can based on what's right. So I maintained courtesy to the judge and to the attorneys. I didn't say, I can't believe all you people are such losers that you're going to just buy into this. So my testimony was done in such a way that, as you said, hopefully people will say, oh, conscience, convictions, we bring those in. And as a matter of fact, we're supposed to bring those in. Otherwise, why not just get robots who you can program guilty or not guilty? That's the advantage of a jury system that you have people who, you know, have lived life. And you can be unbiased. I mean, if I'll take it back to parenthood, because I think parenthood is probably the greatest preparation for anything else you'll ever do. Two kids come up to you and say, he hit me first. He hit me first. Okay, so how do you decide this? We don't have corroborating witnesses. Well, you figure out another way, as King Solomon did, to figure out who's telling the truth. Mm -hmm. There's a funny story. When I used to administer the homeschool choir years ago, uh, we would rent a space at a church, and the intent was to leave it better than we found it. So I just did a quick check of the boys' restroom, a place I don't normally frequent, and there was urine all over the walls. Oh, dear. So now, what do I do? Well, I could have cleaned it up myself, except what would happen next time? So I went to the two oldest boys, and I said, you need to go in and clean the restroom. There's urine all over the walls. And they said, we didn't do that. I said, absolutely. I'm pretty sure you didn't do this, but you clean it up. And now you make sure it never happens again. Hmm. And yeah. guess what? <laughs> they had a conversation, not in front of me with all those boys and it never happened again. Yes. Right. So we didn't need to go to court. I didn't have, you know, I can't imagine any of the kids who did it were going to fess up to it, but there are ways to bring about knowledge of stuff and remedy the situation. Remember, the whole purpose of God's law 
is restitution to God from man, reconciliation, and of course, preceded by repentance. So if we want a biblically ordered society, we pretty much need to know what the Bible says. And there's too many believers, Charles, who, you know, I know the basics. God so loved the world that he gave his own, you know, and that's the extent of it. Yeah. If it's not in the red letters, they probably don't know it. Yeah, but there's plenty in the red letters <laughs> yeah. where Jesus was very emphatic. Yes. Well, I, I think you may have a, a topic for uh, teaching another uh, mentored course. Uh, I think all of us could benefit from two or three lesson course on the ins and outs of if you get a jury summons. So yes. something to and think about. There's plenty to read about the common law and the jury system. And I just implore people, don't go, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this someday and then forget about it, because we're always dealing with matters of justice, whether it's the little boy's room with urine all over the wall or whether or not somebody is going to be convicted and sentenced for something where justice was not served. See, if the person was guilty and he ends up in prison, but the process was unjust, I'm not sure God is pleased. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure God is not pleased. And I would encourage our listeners to never forget the constant exhortation of Dr. Rastuni that the foundation of law of any society is the God of that society. And all law is inevitably moral and religious. The only question is, whose morality and what religion? Indeed. All right. Well, Charles, thanks for indulging me. I I really wanted to share what happened and it got to the point where I thought we should just do a podcast because I've been telling this story over and over again to people. And I think the story is of greater importance, not because of what I experienced, but the status of justice in our society and our responsibility to do something to change it. I totally agree. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you communicate to us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.